see if I can get situated up here. Uh, back in 2005-2006 school year, I was a freshman at Harding University. This is Armstrong Hall, which was my dormitory I lived in. Um, I was on the second floor, room 204, 206, something like that. I don't know. It's been a while now, I guess. Uh, anyway, so right next door to me was a friend of mine named Charlton, and I was in his room one night. Uh, and we were just hanging out, and I don't know, I got to bugging him, messing with him, you know, doing something. Probably should have been in bed. It was probably 3 in the morning. I don't know. It's college, right? So uh, we're up late just doing nothing, and I get annoying him, and, and he's just like, can you just go? Just get out. Just get out. You know, bugging a little more. He's like, just get out. Just get out. Get out. Go. You know, and he's kicking me out of the room, right? And so I start walking, and I was like, all right, all right, all right. And then I come back in just like pretending like I wasn't going to leave, you know, and he's like, no, get out. And he just slams the door right behind me. And I just feel this pain. It's this really, really bad pain in this finger right here. And I just bend over like this, and it's like, ah, you know, it hurts so bad. Just thinking, he slammed my finger in the door. And when I open my hand, there's just blood everywhere. You know, it's just dripping down my fingers. It's all over this place. And I just kind of begin to panic, you know, and I'm shaking a little bit. And I just go over to the door, and I'm just like, knock on the door. And he's just like, no, go away, go away. I was like, knock on the door. And he goes, go away. And I was like, open the door. You know, I'm screaming at him. You know, and he opens the door, and then here, a little piece of my finger just falls out right there about you know something this big right here uh anyway and so you know i'm looking at my finger and i can see blood and bone and he had a roommate uh named austin that you know he's like wanted to be a doctor he did not end up a doctor but you know it's all sorts of people go to college want to be a doctor he did not end up a doctor but anyway he was like here we go i'm ready for this moment so he hops up and he grabs the keys he's like charlton your car's parked close i'm going to take him to you know whatever so i pick up my little piece of finger you know and i'm just like you know, what, what's going on here? Why is this not, you know? Anyway, and so we start walking out. Uh, and we go to the, you know, and then we're, we're almost out at the end of the hall walking out the door. And Charlton's like, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. And we're like, what in the world? What can we be waiting on? He brings a towel. And he said, well, don't get any blood on my seats. And I'm just like, man, you just slant, cut my finger off in a door and you're worried about blood on your seats. Anyway, so we... Uh, Takes me to the hospital, you know, we get to the nurse, and I'm just like, yeah, so I brought this, you know, we didn't have any ice, I hope it's still good, and they're just like, oh, you know, throw it in the trash can. And I was just like, that's me. That's a part of my body. You can't, you know, that's been with me for, you know, 20 years now, 18 years, and you just throw it away, you know, like I grew that, and you trashed it. Anyway, so we go through, and it's this miserable process of me having to clean my finger and all this kind of stuff. And to this day, my finger is just a little bit shorter you know, than this one. This one used to be longer, and now it's, you know, probably half an inch shorter than the other one. So it's just kind of this interesting thing. But why did I tell you that story? Uh, because initially, I felt pain. But when I saw blood, I knew it was an emergency. Right? You ever notice that? You get a stomach ache, and you feel pain, and it hurts. But you're just kind of like, yeah, whatever, it'll go away. Maybe I'll take some medicine. I just need to go lay down. Whatever. The moment you threw up blood or coughed up blood, I'm going to the doctor, right? All sorts of situations like this. For some reason, for us, pain is something we endure, some of us better than others. And blood is something that if you see that, huge problem. You know, that's just kind of the way it is. If you walked in here this morning to the auditorium, if it was before class or after class or just now, whatever it was, and you saw a big pile of blood right here, nobody would just walk in and just be, huh, you know, and go sit down. That's not what would happen, right? You have all sorts of questions going through your head, like, what happened? Whose is this? Is someone okay? Is someone hurt? Was there like a murder here? Like, why is there a pile of blood? You know, you're just asking all these questions, like, what, what is the deal with this blood sitting in the middle of the floor? Because blood makes you ask a question. 
But us as Christians, we get so used to talking about blood, I think, and seeing images, and, you know, we talk about Jesus, and, and, and sometimes when we get to reading, we just kind of skip over, you know, blood. So we read this, or a verse similar to it, nearly every week when it comes to communion. And so I just want you to imagine for a second that somewhere in your life, a close friend, a neighbor, somebody you work with, whatever, you have somebody that just totally unfamiliar with church. But you've been sharing your faith with them, you bring them in here, you know, and they're sitting right next to you, and it comes communion time, and somebody stands up, just like Michael did a little while ago, and uh, Tom read something similar from 1 Corinthians and uh, Matthew 26, and it says, And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. I mean, how many of you, you know, they're already, they come in and they're like, well, everyone's like facing forward and, you know, we're all sitting, it's kind of a weird, I'm not used to this, except at a concert. And they sing songs, it's like, there's something else I don't do unless I'm at a concert. But they're also singing without instruments and that's strange for me. It's not, you know, I don't group sing because I'm not used to church. They say prayer, they're confused, like, what are we talking about? And you get to this part of the service and you're talking about drinking blood? Like, this is weird, Right? Like, blood is something for people that it triggers something. It's like, so afterwards, you know, maybe they're patient and they hang out with you and they're just like, well, I didn't immediately walk out, even though these guys sound like cannibals, but I'm just going to hang around for a second, you know, and I'm going to see what happens to the rest of this service. And afterwards, they come to you and they say, so this drinking blood, eating flesh thing, what's up with that? You know, and you say, well, you know, it represents, you know, Jesus died for our sins and you know, it's what, something we do to remember what he did for us. And they're like, yeah, but why? Why blood? Why are we drinking it? Doesn't that seem weird to you? You know, I think it's something as you grow up in church, it's something you hear. You just do it, you know. We may not really consider it, but why? Why blood? Why do, why do we take communion? Why did Jesus pick this, this moment, for us to remember him, right? It's just kind of, a, kind of something to think about. Um, and I think the big thing... That kind of explains it all is this word covenant. We don't live in a covenant world. We live in a contract world. Right? So covenant is something when two people come together because they decide that through a partnership they can be better than they can alone. Right? That's kind of a big thing with covenant. But something it takes different from us is that it takes trust and it takes faith in the other person. A lot of times there will be an investment made ahead of time, you know, just to say you can have faith in me, but it requires faith in a covenant. We, we live in a contract world. We don't really have faith. It uh, wasn't long ago that Allison and I decided to build a house. Um, I don't know if I have a slide for this. I'm check it out. No, I don't. That we decided to build a house. Uh, we're finally in that house, kind of, where it'll be, you know, an eternity of unpacking. We actually moved out of our old house and still had boxes we never unpacked from the first time we moved in. So I'm just thinking that's how it is. I try to get rid of them. She loves to keep it. So here we go. Uh, so we moved... We moved into this house, uh, but before we sat down and the, we, were, we were sitting down, you know, and we say we built a house, and people say that all the time, but I didn't build a house, you know. I wasn't out there putting nails in. I wasn't holding boards up. You know, that wasn't me. I didn't build a house. What did I do? I got a contractor, right? You know, so I, I sit down with this guy, and he gives me an estimate, and he talks to me about what it's going to cost. He talks to me about how long it's going to take, and then we come to an agreement, and he says, okay, sign right here, and we start signing a contract, and it says something like, when he gets to this point of the house, we'll pay him this much money. When he gets to this point, we'll pay him this much money. You know, and we can sit down and say we trust each other, and that's why we signed this piece of paper. Well, that's not really true, because right after that, I went out and I bought builder's insurance. So if he disappears, I'm good, you know. He knows that if I don't pay him, he can sue me, 
you know, he knows he'll get paid one way or the other, most likely, right? We have all these systems in place where you can't walk into a store and just walk out with a bag of chips. You can say to yourself, well, I don't steal because I'm a good person. He's like, well, maybe, but also you don't steal because you could end up in jail and it's just not worth it, right? We live in a contract world. We have all these systems and layers and insurance and police and fire and all this stuff just layered on top of us, making sure that nobody really has to trust anybody. You know, there's moments in life, there's a few places where this word covenant we still kind of use, and one of those is in weddings. Because there's really no guarantee when you get married. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the real reason why, for any of you that aren't married, everyone is so firm on, like, things you know, what family they came from, you know, what, what church are they a part of, what kind of life do you want to live, you know, what are they used to? What are you used to? Are you from similar backgrounds? Things like that. People are just really encouraged those things because there's no guarantee, right? You know, there's no contract we can sign that says, well, if you're not being the wife you should be or the husband you should be, that, you know, I'll get a million dollars or something. You know, we don't have those. It's still a covenant because you go into it and it's faith and you go into this moment and you decide the two of us can become better together. You know, and we make this covenant between ourselves and with God and there's still faith involved. But it's not many places in our world that we have that anymore. Um, we just live in a contract world, not in a covenant world. There's a lot of covenants in the Bible. You know, there's like First Kings, Second Kings, something like that. There's covenants about Solomon making agreements with other kings about, you know, I'll trade you, you know, trade agreements basically kind of thing. But it's a covenant because they don't have any insurance. You know, they've got a faith in each other. Um, there's covenants in the Bible where it talks about the covenant of marriage. You know, covenant gets mentioned like that. But one of the big reasons that covenant is super important to us and just connects the Bible cover to cover is because you know who the first person to make a covenant in the Bible is. We could say it. It's the same Bible answer that, you know, you give since you're like three years old, right? You're just always, God. So here we go. Who's the first person in the Bible to make a covenant? God. There we go. Who do you think is the second person to make a covenant in the Bible? The same answer. Here we go. Keep it going. Second person to make a covenant in the Bible. God. All right, who's the third person? It's not God, actually. It's not the third. But he is the fourth. Uh, anyway, and so God makes all these covenants, and if God's making covenants, something we need to pay attention to, right? So there's really four, maybe five, and Genesis story doesn't actually mention the word covenant, but it's pretty much a covenant God makes with people. But uh, that we go through these, these situations of covenants in the Bible, and you get the Genesis story, and then you get to Noah, right? He makes the covenant about, I won't destroy the earth again. This is an interesting one because it's just really one-sided. You know, there's nothing Noah has to do. It's just it's more of almost a promise, right? Uh, then you get to the covenant of, with, with Abram that he makes, uh, you know, that I'll, I'll, I'll give you this land and I'll give you kids and, you know, all this kind of stuff. He makes this covenant with Abram. He, with Israel, he makes a covenant, you know, through Moses, and he gives them the law and that they're going to be his people. He gets to David that there's going to be a covenant that uh, through his line there will be a king that reigns forever. There will be a forever kingdom, right? Uh, he makes these covenants. The sad part about these covenants is that when you go through the Bible, that man didn't uphold their end in any of them. You know, not in a single one of them. And the cool thing about Jesus is he comes, and he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And through all these things, he fulfills every covenant for man. Our side of it, right? So he is from the line of Abraham. He is the king that will reign forever. He is the one man that actually upheld the law in total, right? He is the man. He's our representative, you know, he's the, the opposite of Adam almost. He's our representative that he upheld the covenants with God and he kept our side of it. Right? Does that make sense? Big deal there. Um, but we're going we're gonna to back up here and we're going to look at the uh, Abram 
the covenant God made with Abram, who later becomes Abraham, but at the time he's Abram. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 for most of this time. Uh, one of these things, I should probably set my clock out here because sometimes things come to my head and I decide it'd be a good idea to tell a new story and it just really goes over. So here I'll set the clock out. Uh, so Abram is Genesis 15. We're, he's in the middle of a wait, you know, a two decade plus long wait of he received this promise of he's going to have a kid. You know, I think he's in his 90s at this point, still doesn't have the kid. But he's in this wait, just patient, you know, this posture of radical faith to God that, he's, that it's going to happen, right? Um, so the story right before this, because we start off sometime later, which makes you think, well, later than what? Uh, right before this, Abraham pulled off this, like, covert mission where he took, like, 300 people and he went and saved Lot's life from all these kings. So, you know, he could probably... I don't know, kings in the day, they were all kind of just like kings of cities. It wasn't like massive kingdoms, you know, so they're all kind of probably close together. And anyways, this whole situation. So Abram, you know, God feels the need to tell Abram, do not be afraid. I'll protect you and your reward will be great. And Abram says, yeah, God, about that reward. You know, oh, sovereign Lord, what good are your blessings when I don't even have a son? You haven't given me any children. I just am going to have this servant and I need to leave all my stuff to them. What good are these blessings if they don't pass on? You know, it's just temporary. I think there's probably a lot of people in life, especially as you get later in life, but even early on, you start thinking about those things like, what good is working on earth if it just goes away? You know, Solomon talks about that a lot, you know, and here's the situation for him. And here's what God answers. Then the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir. You will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. This is probably something that we do to light pollution and all this kind of stuff, that we don't really get this image that Abram probably got. You know, when he went out and it's just like infinite number of stars. It wasn't long ago I went backpacking and uh, I was down in this valley. It was just north of Mountain View and went across this bridge over this creek so there was no trees around and the mountains kind of like blocked a hole out. And I, and I just, as I looked in, the, it looked in the sky, it's just more and more and more stars. You know, it's just endless. And that the longer I looked, the more I saw. I mean, it was something that just made the whole trip worth it. You know, you see these pictures of people that go into like the dark zones in South America or in Africa or somewhere, and they, and they see these pictures, and it just looks like the, scar, the sky just turned purple, right? You know, there's just so many stars. You've seen these images, and this is probably something Abram's looking at. And, and he says, and God says, that's how many descendants you will have. Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. If you've got a physical Bible with you, that's a good one to highlight. If you've got a, a digital Bible, it's a good verse to mark, whatever. Save it somehow, put it in your memory. I mean, this is a huge thing in the Bible, the big story, that Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. You know, because Paul uh, goes back in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3, and he starts talking about faith, and he starts talking about that it wasn't circumcision, it wasn't the blood of Abraham, it was his faith. This posture of radical faith and belief that what God says he will do, he will do. That his promises are true. That's something that to us, that's how we become children of Abraham, part of Israel, a part of God's nation, kingdom, right? Through faith. Um, and Abraham talks about, the, or in God, God counts it as righteousness for him, and Paul talks about that basically this story becomes our story. And that's why it's relevant. You know, it's interesting to hear Old Testament things, you know, and I, and I, and I think it gives you details and background, but the biggest thing that we have to remember is that this story is our story. 
right? Uh, so we go on. Then the Lord told him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur and the Chaldeans, 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 whatever, to give you this land as your possession. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can, it, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? See, this is really interesting to me because, you know, he's 90-something years old and God says you're going to have a kid and he says, cool, God, I believe you. Then God says, also, I'm going to give you this land and he's just like, well, I don't know about that. You know, I don't know if this was harder to believe for Abraham, Abram. I don't know if this is, uh, maybe it's, you know, because he'd had decades to think about the other promise and decided, I'm committed to this, whatever. You know, I don't know if it's because he knew he was going to see his kid, but the promised land wasn't going to be received for a long time later. So he just, you know, I don't know what it was, but for some reason, he questions God here in this moment. And uh, God kind of humbles himself, I think. You know, and he gives him an answer. You know, he could have just said, who, you know, answer him like Job. Why are you, why are you talking to me? You know, just do what I say. But he doesn't. That's not what God does. So let's see what he does. Uh, so you're in this situation. You get a friend and you say, hey, I need your help. And they say, cool. Tuesday at five. I'll be there. And you say, well, how can I know that you'll be there? All right. So here's probably what they answer. The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Kind of a strange answer, right? I mean, if you, if you had a friend who's like, hey, I need your help. And they said, okay, Tuesday, I'll come over to your house at 5 o'clock. And you said, cool, how can I know? And he's like, well, bring me a cow, bring me a goat, bring me a couple birds. And, you know, now you feel good about it, right? You know, that's all the answer you needed. We'll see where the story goes on. Maybe we'll explain it some more. So Abram presented these to him and killed them. He cut each animal down the middle, laid the halves side by side. He didn't cut the birds. Some vultures swooped down, tried to eat the carcasses. Of course, there's this bloody animal mess everywhere. And Abram chased them away. So now we're all on the same page, right? Now we know how Abram can understand. You know, he can believe. You know, he asked this question right before about, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I'll possess it? And then the, animal, the answer is, let's get all these animals and we'll cut them in half. And now we're good, right? It's kind of, kind of a confusing thing. You know, this is one of those those Bible things that the author here assumes we know something that I think most of us don't know because we live in a contract world, not a covenant world, right? So let's, let's try to back out of our world and let's go all the way back, you know, to a time of Abram. So let's say uh, you have a family and you have some servants and you have some animals and you guys live in this area. You know, you got, you got fields, you got water, you got plenty of space, and this is where you are and you're good. But another family wanders through and you say, hey, this is actually my field and my water and my space. And they say, well, no, it's not. What makes it yours? So you've got some options right now. You can either cut a deal. We say that, cut a deal, right? So it's a whole new definition to cut a deal there. Uh, so you can, you can cut a deal or you can fight, basically, right? So what they would do, a tradition that we find, you know, sort of in Jeremiah 34, it kind of explains it a little bit biblically, but a lot of what we understand of this blood covenant that they would make with animals is from extra biblical text things where they would talk about it. So what they would do uh, is they'd come together and they'd each bring an animal of some kind. They'd bring an investment, right? So same thing if you're in financial counseling, a lot of times somebody will require you to pay money. You know, you don't have any money. Why are you asking me to pay money? Well, they're asking you to pay money to make an investment. You're bought in, right? Dave Ramsey makes you buy a book. We know that. You know, he. Um, our church says... If you want to come to financial peace, we'll pay for it, but you write us a check, so if you don't show up, we're keeping it. 
right? That's our rules. That's how we do it. It's all about an investment. You know, if you give an investment, you're more committed. Where your treasure is, your heart is also, right? Jesus said that. So here we go. Same idea. Um, so we come here, and they take these animals. You know, one of them brings a cow, one of them brings a goat, whatever they bring. They bring these stuff, and they, and they, and they cut these animals in half. And to be clear, it's in half. Not half, but in half. That's kind of a crazy, crazy thought. And they split them on either side, and they lay, and they make this aisle of blood and animal and all this kind of stuff. They walk through the aisle together. Uh, they, they sate what this covenant agreement is. You know, I'll stay on this side of the river. You stay on that side of the river. Um, and basically what they do when they walk in the middle is they say, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Right? Does that make sense? You know, they're committing everything they have to this. If I break my promise, if I break this covenant, what happens to these animals can happen to me. I'll be gutted just like they were. So they brought an investment, and they showed, look, I'm into this. I put money in this thing. I'm, I'm going to keep the promise. And then they write the terms. I'll stay on my side, you stay on yours, and then they commit. If I break this covenant, what happened to these animals can happen to me. Right. So then afterwards they go eat a meal, they break bread, more symbolism. They drink wine, more symbolism. Much like we do every week. Um, so let's go back here. We're back in this story. So that's a blood covenant. That was a, you know, ancient Eastern tradition. Um, anyway, so here we are. So God says, the Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him, and he killed them. Notice, God didn't say, okay, now kill them, cut them in half. He didn't say that. Abram knew what was happening, right? He comes, he brings the animals, and he just gets it. You know, because he's like, oh, we're about to have a blood covenant, because this is things I've seen. You know, he might have made similar deals with other people. So Abram questions God. God humbles himself. Not only does he humble himself, he makes this deal that man is used to. He gets on our level, right? And he makes this cut a deal level, or this thing right here, um, and, and he cuts the animals in halves, and, and he did not ever cut the birds in half. I can't explain that. I've wondered for a long time, tried to do a lot of research, never found an answer. Uh, some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses. This is something, just a side note. If you ever in the middle of trying to make a covenant, repentance, some sort of new commitment to God, you could probably expect some vultures, right? You could probably expect some interference of some kind to get in the way. Just something interesting there. All right, let's go on. So we know what happens. You know, this is the blood covenant, sort of a scene kind of, I don't know, picture I found that was cartoony, so it wasn't too disgusting. Um, so here we are. We're going to continue this story, and so we know what's going to happen, right? You know, God and Abram, we're going to walk hand in hand. They're going to make their declaration of the covenant. They're going to say, whatever happens to these animals can happen to me. You know, we know this, right? Because we've learned about blood covenant. So here it is. The Lord told him... Oh, I just saw that verse. Here we go. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. We're going to pause right here. So fire and smoke is just a regular representation of God and his presence, right? I mean, just all through the Bible. You know, you're in the wilderness and there's a pillar of fire or a cloud they're following. You know, it's just... Um, uh, day of Pentecost, you know, fire tongues and a wind. You know, it's just a, just something that for some reason the Bible uses represents God's presence. So here it is. You've got a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the halves of the carcass. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I've given this land to your descendants all the way from the borders of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. Well, but Abram didn't walk through that. 
He didn't walk down the aisle. The whole deal with the blood covenant is we cut the animals in half, we both walk down the aisle, we both accept the punishment, but Abram didn't do that. So did he not make a covenant? No, we know he made a covenant because it says right there, so the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day. Okay, so does Abram not have anything to contribute to this covenant? Is that why he didn't walk? No, we know he does. Circumcision, right? His line, he's supposed to keep his family faithful, he's supposed to follow God's instructions all through the story. We know he has a dent into uphold, so what are we saying? Why is he asleep while God goes through it alone? You know, I think God goes down the aisle and he says, if I don't uphold this covenant, it's on me. If you don't uphold this covenant, it's still on me. Right? And we know how the story ends. God gets gutted. It's not through God's unfaithfulness. He keeps his covenant side with Abram, with Noah, with the people of Israel, with David, with us. But we don't. So God gets gutted, right? Um, sorry, I lost my spot here. Yeah, uh, so one of the things in the prophets, when they start talking about this idea of like God being the one gutted, the betrayal, whatever, you know, they describe it as uh, like an adultery, right? Some of you have probably been the victim of that, of having a husband or a wife that's unfaithful to you, and you know how that feels, and God describes it the same way to us. That in our covenant is unfaithful, when we're not true to God, that it's as if we're cheating on him in a marriage, right? That's how he describes this pain and this this issue. And um, God's not unfaithful to us, but he still says, I walked down the aisle, you didn't. I got both ends of this thing, you know? You have, a, you have a role to keep, but I'm not planning to punish you for it. You know, I, I, this covenant I'm making, it's all on me. I'm putting it all on the table. I'm taking all the risk. I'm just asking you to be a part of it. Um, but we get hope, right? Also, just before we think, this is people of the Old Testament. We've talked about this. But Romans 4.25, it clearly states, that Jesus was on the cross for our sins as well, right? Uh-oh, I don't know what I did there. Robert, you're going to have to fix me there. Uh, but there's good news. Don't know any other way to say it than good news. It is in Jeremiah, chapter 31. We have to get through some things here. Uh, there we go. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah, chapter, 30, th- chapter 31, starting verse 31. Uh, the prophets, a lot of them, they start talking about a new covenant. That we're going to have a new opportunity. Yeah, man screwed it all up. Yeah, God's going to have to pay the punishment. But there's also going to be a promise of a new covenant. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. See, right there, it talks about it. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You know, the prophets talk about this new covenant, and they look forward to a day when there's finally going to be a kingdom that lasts forever, like David, when there's finally going to be people who follow God's laws, like in Israel, when there's finally going to be the nation of Israel is is together and, and has the promised land, like the covenant he made to Abram. 
You know, and Jesus comes into the world, and like I said, he fulfills our end of things, right? He takes uh, this covenant with Abram and Israel and David, and he makes them all come true, and he takes man's side of things. But we also know, as we remember each week at the communion, that he also took God's side of things too, right? Because he walked down the aisle by himself. He kept both ends of the covenant. It's a big deal. Back to Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. So he says this bread is his body, and he breaks it. Right? Just like in the blood covenant, they ate the meal afterwards and they broke bread. So here we are. Jesus takes this bread and he says, This is my body, and he breaks it. Why are we eating flesh? Why are we doing that? Covenant. He took a cup of wine, he gave thanks to God for it, he gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. Says it right there, plain as day. This is the new covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Amen, right? Jesus takes both ends of this covenant for us. He does all the work, and all he asks is that we join in the covenant with him. You know, we wonder why flesh, why blood, and this is why. Because from the very beginning, blood covenant is what was set up. You know, it, it, was, it was God coming down and being humble and coming to man the way we were, and he sets up blood covenant, and we come through, and here we are now, and, and we know that blood is the price for sin, but it also just represents so much more than that. You know, that Jesus is here to hold both ends of this deal, to start this new covenant with us. You know, and I, I don't know where this message will hit you, you know, where this idea, if you've heard this before, if you haven't, if it's all new, I don't know. Um, but two things I really think that we need to take away is, number one, that our faithfulness is in Jesus' scars. Our unfaithfulness is in Jesus' scars, right? Every time we don't do what we're supposed to do, when we're not upholding our end of the deal, Jesus is on the cross for it. We know that, we get told that, but it really needs to hit home. Because I can't imagine anything worse than making a sacrifice for somebody in a big way and they just didn't even know about it. You know, they didn't realize it. They don't pay attention to it. It just becomes blah. You know, there's scene in, the scene in Saving Private Ryan, I don't know if any of you have seen that movie, um, where basically the storyline is there's this one man and he's got a whole bunch of brothers, they're all in war, and all the brothers die. You know, and so the military says, we just cannot have this mom lose every one of her sons. I don't know, there's like five of them or something like that. And so you follow this scene of this group that their only job is to go get this man out. And you follow this battalion and all these people, they're dying, they're in war too, they're just trying to get somewhere, they're not even necessarily trying to accomplish the main mission. Their mission is to get this guy out and you're losing life after life after life after life. Uh, and the main guy in charge of this group, when they finally find Private Ryan... And they come to him and they say, hey, your brother's died. And he said, which ones? And they say, all of them. You know, and they say, and you've got to go home. He says, I don't want to go home. You just tell my mom these are my brothers. He said, we're not telling your mom anything. You're going home, right? So they, they tell him he's going home. But in the, in the midst of trying to get him out, the leader of this group that was come to get him ends up getting shot. And he's on the ground. And the last thing he tells him is, earn it. Earn this. Right? 
So they have this final scene of Private Ryan. He's an old man. He's got his family behind him. He's at the gravesite, and he, he's talking to his wife, and he just says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I earned it. You know, because like when someone makes a sacrifice for you, it should mean something, right? If you, if you just went on and lived his life like anybody else, what was the sacrifice for? Why did it happen? Our unfaithfulness is in Jesus' scars. We need to remember that. The second one is our future is also in his scars. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that every one of God's promises is yes through Jesus. Our future is in his scars in the way that when you come to a blood covenant and when they want to invest something, right? So they bring their animal, they bring value possessions, they bring their treasure, and they put it in here and they say, we can be in agreement that this covenant's going to happen because we both invested something. What more could Jesus have invested? What more could he have done? He gave it all. He left heaven, he gave up power, authority, he gave up fame to come down here to be born in the lowest of births, to be spat on his whole life and insulted to people, to the very people he loves that he's here for to kill him. What more could he have given? You know, and we should be able to look at that story and say he invested that much. There's no way that the promises of God that he promises us peace and he promises joy and he promises we can live life to the full and he promises an eternal life. There's no way we should be able to take these two things and say, well, I just don't know. I don't know if he'll follow through. You know, like we can take so much confidence and hope in his future because of what he's already put into it. He's invested. And he asks us to be just as invested. That our life from here on out is his. Just as he gave his life for us, we give our life. Not physically, but every day we wake up, and instead of doing what Jonathan wants to do, what is it Jesus wants me to do? He gave his life for me, I need to do the same for him, because that's what our covenant is. I need to have this posture of radical faith, just like Abram, that if I live the life that God wants me to live, if I do what he wants me to do, joy, love, peace, all his promises will come. And I should trust that. And that's faith. We don't have any assurances. You know, there's no situation that if Jesus doesn't work out, it's like, well, I got this insurance policy. You know, we're not in a contract world. It's a covenant. That's where we are. Um, our unfaithfulness is in his scars and our future's in his scars. So like I said, I, I don't know where this hits you. I don't know uh, what this message means to you. I don't know if you're someone that has partaken in this covenant before. I don't know if you've, if you've chosen to join this covenant with Jesus through baptism and you know you've been unfaithful, like all of us have. But for some reason you want prayer or you want encouragement or you need some sort of accountability and you might need to come forward this morning. Or maybe you're just now realizing how great a king Jesus is to serve. You know, you realize how exciting this covenant is to be a part of. And you want to come forward and get baptized today and join this covenant with us. Either way, I want to invite you to come, come forward as we stand and sing.